0: It is at the start of this message that more than likely will be the only time I address the authenticity of the book of Jonah. I think it's fitting since I'm doing a large sermon series on it. Uh, this is the most uh, questioned book in all of Scripture, uh, something that has truly baffled me. The, the big, you know, um, main reason that uh, people reject the book of Jonah is the idea of a whale swallowing a man and and the man coming back out alive. But somehow we have no problem um, believing the rest of the Bible of a God that literally created the heavens and the earth with His Word, uh, that formed man out of the dust and Eve out of the rib of man, uh, that sends fire from heaven in the case of Elijah, that raises the dead. Uh, that has done all of the other great works in parts of the Red Sea, somehow how this one particular miracle is hard. I mean, I've never understood it. In all the years that I've heard people ridicule this, it has not made any sense to me. Um, But the main reason this book is rejected is simply because of the miracle of the fish. Uh, Others have questioned the size of Nineveh. As when we get to Nineveh, this great city, and we hear of its population, Nineveh has been discovered, which ironically lends credibility to the book of Jonah, for the book of Jonah was the first place that told us of the land of Nineveh. But then, Nineveh has an inner wall, and that inner wall is a total of like eight miles. For you math nerds out there, you can figure out that if it's got eight miles of wall, that means that the circumference of that wall, or excuse me, the diameter of it is less than two miles, or right about two miles. If you take two times pi, that's 3.14. And you're welcome, my math teachers. Well, you start doing the math, you get an eight-mile wall and a two-mile depth, and they say, hey, it wouldn't take three uh, days to walk through a city that was two miles if you really just were booking you could get 15 to 20 miles in three days. Well, you couldn't if you were stopping everywhere and preaching to everybody, you came. And furthermore, this was the inner wall of Nineveh, and there, the city of Nineveh would actually include all of the uh, suburbs, if you will, that are on the outside of the inner wall. Um, but uh, this is, there, there are a lot of reasons people reject the Scriptures and reject Jonah. All of them seem to really fall flat when you look at them with reason. Um, Third, uh, some have noted that the king of Nineveh is also the king of Assyria. And they say, well, that's strange. Why would the king of Assyria be called the king of Nineveh, which is just a city? Well, Nineveh was pretty much the capital of Assyria. And there are many other times in the Old Testament that the king of a country or nation is also called the king of that nation's capital. It's done with Ahab of Israel, called the king of Samaria. Isaiah, the king of Israel, also called the king of Samaria. Uh, Ben-Hadad of Aram is referred to as the king of Damascus, and so it's actually pretty common. This is a crazy reason to say, well, you should not trust the book of Jonah because the king of of, um, Assyria is called the king of Nineveh. Fourth, um, there are some that reject this because of the sudden repentance of the Ninevites. They point to the people of Nineveh who are known as an absolute brutal people and say there's no possible way that these people would have repented. Well, that's just foolishness. Uh, we know that uh, our God does do supernatural works and we can actually read of multitudes of nationwide, citywide, uh, culturewide revivals throughout the history of the world um, but it's very likely that this particular group of people were, may have even been prepared for this supernatural work. If Jonah had gone to the city during the reign of the Assyrian king Asherdan III, the prophet may have found that the city was prepared for his message because they had just gone through two famines, one in 765 and one in 759. There was also a total solar eclipse in June 15th of 763 and the people in those days often took those types of things as this warning of impending doom. And the likelihood is when we look at the history of Jonah and his time that he came to the Ninevites in this period of time. Now I want to share with you some arguments quickly uh, before getting to the text of why really this book should be accepted. Number one, it uses known cities. Everything in this book is actual people, actual cities, actual names. And so it would seem ludicrous that an allegory would use real people, real names, real places. Known cities like Nineveh, Tarshish, Joppa. Jonah is viewed as a real historical person, not a fictional character. He was a prophet from Gath Heifer. We see him also mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14. He lived during the reign of a very real historical person, King Jeroboam II. Next, Jesus recognized Jonah as an actual person, not as some story, but as a real person and called him a prophet. He pointed to the great miracle of Jonah's recovery from the fish in Matthew chapter 12. And so Jesus spoke of Jonah and the events of Jonah as real events in history. And finally, if this book is non-literal, if, it, if it's just an allegory, this is the only book in all of Scripture written this way that isn't literal and that just makes absolutely no sense at all. This event, this life that we are going to be studying is a very real life, something that really happened in history. And as we're going to see as we study through the book of Jonah, it is mind-blowing to me as I've been studying this. This is very fresh to me. I'm not preaching any, uh, you know, I have preached on the book of Jonah many years ago. I don't even have those notes. I haven't even referenced those. This is all new to me. And um, I'm really excited to be teaching through it. And what's fascinated me is that a book that is so small, so short, has the entire message of Scripture from start to finish. And so I'm excited to get into it. This morning, by way of introduction, what I want us to do is look at what I'm going to call the six great themes of the book of Jonah. They are... um, in this book from start to finish. Though it be a a short book, all six themes are what this book is about. Number one, the great prophet of Israel. This is an especially important book for those that God has called into ministry because it forces us to ask the question, what is great? Jonah is actually considered to be one of the most accepted, well-liked prophets of the Old Testament. When you study the prophets of the Old Testament, almost none of them saw any fruit of their labors. The people of Israel did not like their prophets. They normally stoned them and killed them, but Jonah was very liked. And when the people, the prophets of Israel would prophesy to large groups of people, nobody listened, nobody repented, Not only does Jonah have a successful ministry with the people of God, Jonah walks into Nineveh and just simply basically preaches, repent or you're all going to get destroyed. And the greatest revival of a pagan uh, people ever recorded in history happens at Jonah's preaching. By all accounts, when you look at the fruit of his labor, Jonah was an incredibly successful prophet. The irony is, In the sight of God, and when we study His story, He wasn't spiritually successful. And so the book of Jonah leads us to the question, what is great ministry? What is great success? What makes a man or woman of God great in the eyes of God? Can we possibly even determine if a man or a woman of God is great based solely on whether or not the multitudes listen? Whether or not they are accepted by God's people? The obvious answer is no. The obvious answer is that it's incredibly possible to have um, impact It's incredibly possible to look successful, to be liked, and yet have something that is very wrong that God is going to deal with, as we see. Something very wrong that needs to change in the heart of that man or woman. So what makes a prophet great? Number two, the next great theme of this book is the great commission of evangelism. The Great Commission comes to Jonah. In essence, go into all the world. God comes to Jonah, says, Get up, you're gonna get out of this city, you're gonna get quit preaching to your own people, and I'm sending you to Nineveh. The book of Jonah is concerned entirely with Jonah's mission to Nineveh. In 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. This is the only other place. It's just a few short verses that the Bible tells us about Jonah. And if you go look at what God told Jonah to do, here's why he was liked by Israel. Because Israel was really in rebellion to God. Their walls had been, um, you know, kind of destroyed. The enemy was taking territory. And even at a time when Israel was going in the wrong direction, just like Jonah, even at a time when Israel's going the wrong direction, in 2 Kings, God gives Jonah this positive message. It's one of the few times that Israel's really sliding the wrong way, and rather than just hammering them, God gives them a pretty positive message. And Jonah gets up and he declares, God's going to restore our land. God's going to give back uh, what the enemy's taken from us. And everybody's like, yes! God did exactly what God was going to do. And so Jonah's very well accepted. We get about four verses of that in the rest of Scripture, and then we have the entire book of Jonah, which deals with nothing but Jonah's call to go evangelize to Nineveh. And the great theme, one of the great themes of Jonah, is this call on God for His people to evangelize the world. We, brothers and sisters, must understand that God has called us not to just build the church Uh, not to just raise up Christian kids and not to just um, hide away from the Ninevehs of the world, but God has called us to go to the Ninevehs of the world and to preach to them repentance of their sins, that they might find forgiveness in Christ, that they might be saved. And we see this great call of evangelism. This is a call that burdens my heart. It's something that I constantly think about. What can we do better at the Well Worship Center? How can we be evangelizing more? I even look at all the missions we do, and I often make sure, God, are we evangelizing? Because it's very possible to go and just help people and be nice and feed people and clothe people and be nice, but not actually be evangelizing. And we're not doing anybody favors if we're clothing them and feeding them and rescuing them from their temporary pain, if we are not giving them the only thing that can rescue them from their eternal pain, and that is salvation in Jesus Christ. And we see that this great theme of Jonah is, go to Nineveh. Go where nobody else will go. Go tell these people of the impending doom that is coming. And we see a God who cares for everybody. Not just Israel, not just Jonah, not just a certain pocket of people that he loves. We see a God that cares for everyone. The lesson to be learned is this, that God pities the undeserving. Now there's some irony in the book of Jonah and in the people of Israel in that they never really get the message. You know when Jonah shows up and he prophesies that God's going to show favor to Israel and Israel's like, yes! They were undeserving. They didn't deserve it. But God showed them favor. And God pities the undeserving. None of us, not a single one of us, came to God because God was looking around and He looked at you and thought, now that one right there, that one deserves to be saved. That's not the way it worked. We were all undeserving and yet God pitied us. He cared for us when we shouldn't have been cared for. And this is the message of Jonah. This is the message of take the gospel to all the world and preach it to all creatures because God pities the undeserving. Yeah. This whole theme of Jonah, it brings us to this great people, like this worst, uh, th- th- this is the third point, the great city of Nineveh. It leads us to like the worst of the worst, the reprobates, the people everyone's scared of. And what we see is that God says, I still pity them. I pity the undeserving. And the book of Jonah kind of faces all of us uh, in the mirror and asks us, who are the people in your life that are so detestable to you that you don't really pity? You're, you kind of hope that they get destroyed. You kind of hope that they have it coming to them. This was the heart of Jonah. We're going to see it over the next six weeks. Jonah just wanted them to just suffer. Somehow saw himself as way above these people. And God spends the entire book of Jonah trying to teach Jonah, nope, you're right here, Jonah. You're no different than the very people you hate. Jonah never actually gets the message. The question that I'm curious is, will we, as we really dig into this book, Will we get the message? Will we come to see that we have all needed to be pitied in the eyes of God? And that if God would extend His favor and grace to us, then who are we to withhold it from anyone? We see this great call to evangelism. This great call to take the message that there is a God who sees. Number three, the great city of Nineveh. That's what this book uh, really revolves around. Jonah's call to this great city of Nineveh. It was great in size. It was great in power. It was great in its military prowess. It was great in a lot of ways according to the people of the time. When Jonah heard Nineveh, he immediately knew about Nineveh. He knew about those people. He didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to do a little research and then come back to God. No, he knew. He heard the word Nineveh. I, I know about those people. This, this is the, the mindset and this is the uh, fame or infame, if you will, that Nineveh had. Now, while they were great in size, great in power, great in the way that the world around them feared them, that from God's perspective, Nineveh was also great in wickedness. Notice it says call out against it for their evil has come up against me. We see that the reaction of the Lord to such wickedness was unwavering. He was against it. Something else really important we need to understand is we study the book of Nineveh, or excuse me, the book of Jonah. Nineveh really represents the world. That's what it represents. Yes, it's kind of the worst of the world. In some ways, it's similar to how Egypt represents the picture of the world when it's referenced a lot in the Old Testament. Nineveh is a picture of just the wickedness of mankind. And here's what we learn. God sees it. God sees the wickedness of mankind. The Bible teaches us that Israel, that would be God's people, is the apple of His eye. And so we know that God has His eye on His people, but we also learn from the book of Jonah that God doesn't just have His eye on His people, God has His eye on all people of the planet, all people of earth, and He sees the wickedness of those who reject Him. He sees it. He's conscious of it. And what do we see? God Is against it. This is a warning. It's a warning not to accept wickedness. It's a warning to see that our God is holy and that He knows what's going on, He sees what's going on, and He is against it. Nineveh was against God. So Nineveh was against God, and the Bible teaches that, that those who do not follow Him, those who reject uh, His laws, those who reject his, his ways, those who reject His Son, that God sees them as enemies of His. So Romans 5 teaches this is that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. But make no mistake about it, from the perspective of heaven, He saw us as enemies, right? So we were against Him. Jesus said, he that is with us, is or for us, is with us. And those that are not with us, those that are not with us, they are against us. God saw us as being against him. But you've got a much greater problem than being an enemy of God. You, Nineveh had a much greater problem than the fact that they were against God. God was against them. Jonah was told, do not miss this. I'm going to say right here, it's going to make a few people question what they've heard and and be mad. Think on it. Chew on it. Read the book yourself. God told Jonah to go cry out against Nineveh, the people of Nineveh. And who was God going to judge? The people of Nineveh. We see that when God turns against us, it is us that He judges. You know who was in danger here? The people of Nineveh. They were in danger. Now, why does this matter? Because you ever heard God judges the sin but not the sinner? God hates the sin but not the sinner? Then why is there a hell? As if God somehow takes all your sins and throws them in hell and punishes your sins. But you're going to get a free pass. No. You will be judged. You will be judged for your sins. And so who does God actually punish for sins? The sinner. You need to understand that. As if somehow the only thing God really is displeased with are the actions themselves. No, God is very displeased with the sinner, him or herself. The fact that He's made provision for the sinner to be saved tells us that God loves us. The fact that Jesus came and died for the ungodly, that while we were enemies of His, He loved us, that tells us something about the nature of God. But we have missed the point when we have come to believe that there is nothing really coming to those that are enemies of God. When God is against you, you have every reason in the world to be fearful. And Nineveh, representing the wickedness of earth, God steps up and says, I am about to destroy the people. Of Nineveh. And when it's all said and done, God's not just going to destroy the earth. God's not just going to take the sins of the wicked and somehow deal with them off over here. God is going to deal with the people. That's who He's holding responsible. That's who He is judging. And that is who needs to be fearful. It is a dangerous thing to stand against the Lord. It is a dangerous thing to think that somehow because God is so loving, you're going to get away with your sins and your things. God just doesn't like the things you do, but really He loves you. You need to repent of your sins and the world needs to repent of its wickedness. And brothers and sisters, God calls us to evangelize this truth that your sins you will be accountable for. Your sins you're going to answer to God for lest you find a mediator that's willing to stand in and take your, your, uh, the payment for your sins and deal with that. And there's only one who can do that and that's Jesus Christ. We see the great city of Nineveh. There is this ray of hope. If you've ever wondered, why did Jonah um, not want to go preach? How did he know? Why didn't he think judgment was going to come? Because the thing that God told him to say was yet 40 days. 40 days. 40 in the Old Testament, always symbolizes time of testing. Jesus was tested, this is the New Testament, but 40 days in the, in the wilderness or in the desert. And the uh, people of Israel wandered for 40 years during that time of testing. And Moses spent 40 years wandering himself in the wilderness before God met him at the burning bush. Uh, if anybody understood that this was Jonah... Had the message just been, tell them they're all going to die, Jonah would have went. Instead, it was in 40 days. And Jonah understood there was this window of time for repentance, this ray of hope that you still have time to repent And brothers and sisters, as long as today is today, the Bible teaches us that today is the day of salvation. I don't care how wicked the world is. I don't care how wicked your family is. I don't care how wicked your neighbors are. There is a ray of hope, and we need to be proclaiming to the world that you need to repent before God comes down and brings destruction. Number four, we notice this theme in the book of Jonah. I will call it the great power of preaching. The great power of preaching. We see the greatest revival recorded in Scriptures, and it comes from a man that was preaching. We see that when there was a work to be done, God tells His preacher to get out and preach. It's amazing to me that God could have used a different method. It's amazing to me that if God wanted, He could just pull back the skies, stick His head down to earth, and just yell at all of us. Instead, He chooses to use us to spread the message of the gospel. There is power in preaching. The Lord could use other means than people. Something else that I see here in the power of preaching In no way am I justifying Jonah's sinful actions, neither is the Lord and neither are Scriptures. But God used the preaching of a bubbling prophet, a rebellious spirit, He used the preaching to bring revival to the Ninevites. Ninevites. There is power in preaching. Something we need to be reminded of. I'm convinced that the devil... Has somehow got in the minds of, of the church, and we think there's better methods than preaching. There is so little true preaching, preaching the Word of God. It's not abnormal now to literally listen to some of the greatest, when I say greatest in numbers, in power, and in influence, some of the greatest pastors of our time and listen to them supposedly be preaching a message or a sermon, and yet there's almost no Scripture. We don't learn anything about God. We don't learn anything about God's character. We don't learn anything about the Scriptures and their application to our life. It's just like kind of self-help stuff, and, and we think that somehow filling seats in and of itself is success. We have lost sight of the power of preaching. And it, the, the amazing thing about preaching It's words. It's not necessarily, you know, uh, graphics and videos and lights and this and that. It is just simply proclaiming the Word of God. And we see that when God set out to do a work, that's what He would do. He sent John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. He sent the disciples out Preaching the kingdom of God, repent for the kingdom of God is near. When Jesus began his ministry, he began preaching. It is There's something supernatural about it. And this book of Jonah, it's about preaching. It's about God telling one of his preachers to go and preach, and the preacher looking back at God and saying, I don't want to go. You know why he didn't want to go? Because he understood the power of preaching. It's what God asked him to do. And we have got to be committed to it. We've got to be committed to teaching the Scriptures, preaching the Scriptures, because there is great power in preaching. That brings me just back to the thought of evangelism. It seems so obvious that Jonah could not possibly preach to the people of Nineveh from his own doorstep. He's got to go to where they are. He's got to face them face to face. He's got to look them in their eyes. And He's got to point the finger at them and say, I am preaching to you. He must go to them and preach. The fifth great theme of this book is the great rebellion of Jonah. All of these themes we will be studying over the next several weeks. Having been told to get up and go, Jonah gets up, but he goes the other way. Instead of going northeast, he goes west. He doesn't argue with God about the mission, he just runs from it. Man, I've seen people do it. It's an in your face act of disobedience. And why? Was he frightened? Maybe he had reason to be, but that wasn't why. Jonah's problem was the message itself. He didn't like the message. God told him to say 40 more days and Nineveh would be overturned. Jonah understood. God is offering forgiveness to these people. And Jonah would have none of it. In a lot of ways, Jonah was a racist. He felt like an entire block of people. He didn't even know these people. But he had an assumption about every single human that would be in that area. They all deserved to be punished, they all deserved to be destroyed. But the message that God had given him was one where there was this window, this opportunity to hear the word, think on the word, and have plenty of time to repent. And Jonah said, no, I don't want anything to do with this. And so Jonah runs from God, which is just crazy. Jonah would have known Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, where can I go to flee from the presence of the Lord? (laughs) Jonah would have known that. He would have known that word. But sin warps our thinking and things that we never thought we would have done, we find ourselves doing. Jonah would have known that the Psalms also teach us that in the presence of the Lord is the fullness of joy. And yet, he's trying to flee from the very presence that can bring him joy. This is the irony. Can you see I hope you can see what I see this morning. The depth of how this applies to mankind. How foolish we are when we think we can run from God and find peace and joy. It's insane. In His presence and in His presence alone is the fullness of joy. And yet... When we get involved in sin and we think we know better than God, we try to run away from God because we don't want to face God and we don't want to do what God tells us to do. And somehow in our foolishness, we think that if we run far enough away, we'll find peace and joy over there. But we never do. If anybody would have known this, it was Jonah. But he just keeps running. Ultimately, he is so determined on his course of action, Jonah chooses suicide before repenting. And we thought Nineveh was a bunch of idiots. We thought Nineveh was a bunch of wicked people who would refuse to ever do the will of God. It's one of the... the. Um, undertones of the book of Jonah is that Jonah never realizes he's not any different than the Nineveh, people of Nineveh. And God goes to no uh, holds no nothing back to help Jonah learn the lesson. Jonah, you're no different than everybody else. The people that you judge, the people that you want destruction and doom to fall upon, you're not any different than them, Jonah. You think they don't serve me? You don't serve me. You think they reject my law? You reject my law. You think they don't want to honor me with their living? You're not honoring me with your living. And yet Jonah never got to the place where he was like, God, woe is me. Who am I to think that I deserved this and that you owed me something and our people something and you owed them destruction? This is the message God's trying to teach Jonah the whole time. And Jonah never comes to see it in this, this book. It's I'm not we're gonna get through it. Spoiler alert. Jonah doesn't really repent. He ends up doing what he's supposed to do, but when you see the heart and the attitude behind it, he's mad. He never really learns the lesson, and that's what this book is about is the great rebellion of Jonah, and I throw back out this question, what makes a prophet great? Because that's what this is about. It's about the great prophet of Israel, the great Jonah. Well, is he really that great? What makes somebody in ministry great? What makes a great man or a great woman of God? Jonah still never comes to see it. And the sixth theme of this book my favorite theme, is the great pursuit of God. That's the the great theme. That's the greatest of all the themes of this book. That's what it's about from the opening to the closing. When you look at verse 2 and what God says should happen, and when you look at the very last verse of chapter 4, the book is about the pursuit of God to a people who don't deserve it. And what Jonah did not realize was that God was going to chase him down. At first, this is the way it works. It might have just been like a gentle tap on his shoulder. Jonah's walking away. He gets the message. jonahs he's tricking God, you know. He's packing up. He's doing what he's supposed to do. God told him to get it. He's he's packing up. He's he's getting his suitcase. He's leaving the house. And then... Heads this direction. And no doubt, there's a little tap on the shoulder. Where are you going, Jonah? Have I ever led you astray? Has my word ever been wrong? And Jonah's arguing. He gets down to Joppa. Things are very different there. It's a little different culture than what he's used to. And there's, there's there's that voice of the Holy Spirit says, this ain't your home, boy. This isn't where you're supposed to be. You're going the wrong direction. And before we know it, we don't even get through verses, I think, what are we, in verse 4? And God hurls this violent storm at Jonah. And we see a God that is willing to pursue us to the ends of the earth. We see a God that is willing to bring a great storm, if that's what it takes to get our attention. I want to close this morning um, kind of my intro to this sermon series with three very quick observations about Jonah's storm. Number one, sometimes the greatest storms that we face are sent by God. We know in the New Testament, Jesus can calm the storm. He did that. We know that He can walk on top of the storm. He also did that. But the same God who calms the storm and the same God who walks on top of the storm, sometimes He sends the storm. And this was no ordinary storm. This was a life-threatening storm. Not only does God send storms, He literally hurls them. Look at that word, the Lord hurled a great wind. That word hurled, it's the same word that they used when they threw the cargo off of the ship and into the sea. It's the same word that's used, in fact, um, in the same chapter. It's used three times. It's the same word that's used later when they take Jonah and throw Jonah into the sea. I mean, it is to forcefully take and hurl it. That's the word that's used here for this storm. It's like, just came out of nowhere. Sometimes the greatest storms that we face are sent by God Himself. And the hurling of the storm is not some frustrated God who's just angry and trying to get back or throw a tantrum with people that won't follow Him. It is a precise storm. It is a well-thought-out and intentional storm with a purpose in God's actions. God is not out to punish Jonah. kind of looks that way. But He's not out to punish Jonah. He's out to turn him around. That's the purpose of the storm. That's why God hurled it on him. Because God said, I will chase you to the ends of the earth, Jonah, to turn you around. And the irony is, that's all He's doing with the people of Nineveh. That's the irony. We see this about the character of God, that He will do anything. He will do everything to reach us, to save us, to rescue us. And if that means that He must hurl the most violent storm upon us we have ever been through, if that's what it takes to get our attention, God loves us so much, He will do just that. Some of life's greatest lessons are learned in the storm. There are so many lessons we're learning from this story. It's incredible. There are things that only could be taught to Jonah here. And Jonah, as we see, really does choose to reject the lesson. But there are some things, some of life's greatest lessons are learned in the storm. And I'm going to tell you, when you learn to see that and you learn to believe that, you will learn to embrace the storm. It'll change the way you handle it. Doesn't mean you're gonna like it, but it does change the way you handle it. There's some questions that we need to begin asking when we're going through storms, like, God, did I bring this on? I would always start there. I don't think there's anything wrong with just double checking. You know, is this financial storm I'm in the result of me refusing to keep your financial principles? Because trust me, God can rescue if God chooses, but sometimes. We're in the mess we're in because of the decisions we've made. God, is my marriage on the rocks and is it coming to, to this, this awful end because I haven't been doing things, we haven't been doing things, we haven't been treating each other according to your principles? So the first question is when the storms come, is God, is there something that I personally need to be doing different? Is there something I need to repent of? And then after that, the next question is, God, what do you want me to learn through this? So if some of life's greatest lessons are learned in the storms, then what can I learn here? What can I learn now? I'm convinced with all of my heart that sometimes God allows, or in this case, even brings difficulty into our life because it forces us back to a place of prayer. I wish it wasn't true, but I talk to God more during times of uh, chaos and storms than during the times when things are good. I mean, I don't totally quit praying when everything's good. That would be a lie if I told you that. I don't quit spending time with God just because things are good. But I will tell you this, I spend a lot more time with God when I'm in the middle of a storm. And I kind of wish that wasn't true, but it's just the way we humans are. Sometimes there's things, God uses those moments to teach us more about Him, to teach us about something that's going on, something we need to do, something we need to do different, something that needs to change. And so learn to embrace the storms of life and learn from them. And the third thing that I want to note from the storm is that your reaction to the storm matters. We're going to study the reactions to the storms here in the weeks to come. But your reaction matters. You know, the first reaction is that of hopeless despair. There's this really strange statement. When you look at verse 4, the last few words of verse 4, it says the ship threatened to break up. It's a really, really strange statement. Um. Some translations translate the word threaten, thought, to break up. But it literally, it, the, the way that that word is, the way that that sentence is structured is this. It treats it as if the ship was a living thing that had a consciousness it was going to die and it was threatening. I'm going to break up. That's, it's a really strange thing to, to put that word threaten or thought to the ship itself. But that's the way that it's worded. But even the ship's thinking to itself, I'm going to die here. It's about to fall apart. This is the first reaction is that of of just hopeless despair. It's too late. There's no hope. Everything's going to be bad. And while the ship, an unthinking ship, could possibly have an excuse, We as humans, especially we who are gods, never have an excuse for hopeless despair. What's the worst that could happen to us is death. But Paul said, it'd be better for me to die and be with him. Even death has lost its sting for the child of God. And no matter what I guess so what if I don't die well then I'm going through a storm where I'm learning lessons I'm going to come out on the other side stronger and better I mean when you, we as the children of God we never have an excuse for hopeless despair but it is indeed a reaction often to the storms of life number 2 we just see the general reaction of fear the sailors were terrified they thought they were going to die and in a moment when death is knocking at their door and they are faced with the reality of eternity. They're freaking out. And it leads them to the next reaction of what I would call empty religion. All of a sudden, these sailors got real religious. You call on your God. You call on your God. You call on your God. As if, you know, there's just this blast of gods out there. They might get lucky and get the one. It's like, all of a sudden, they've got an organized, real quick little church service on deck. And then they got the reaction of secular reasoning, which, by the way, has its time and place. God has given us a brain. But in this scenario, lightning the cargo and throwing it over uh, wasn't going to do the trick. This wasn't some storm that was just going to pass if they could wait, wait it out. This was a supernatural storm that needed a supernatural answer and all the natural reasoning of men and all the plans of men and all the coming together of these sailors, it wasn't going to be enough. They had to get past the symptoms of what was going on and get to the heart of what was going on. We see the reaction of running away. This was Jonah's reaction. Running away had become a habit with Jonah. And here he is, down in the belly of the ship, trying to sleep it off. The missing reaction is a reaction of repentance. We don't see that here. The missing reaction is a reaction of simply calling out to God and acknowledging what we've done. And it's interesting because like the head sailor, the captain... You know, he says to Jonah, uh, get a hold of your God. And the, the real words, I mean, it's little g. He doesn't know who Jonah's God is. He's, he, Jonah's just a guy on board. You know, he's like, you call your God. You call yours. You call yours. You call yours. He gets Jonah and says, wake up, call your God. And perhaps maybe he'll listen. I'm out of time this morning. The last thing I want to say is this, though, about how this all ends up. God did listen. Let that sink in. God did listen. And this sailor who knew almost nothing, nothing about how God worked, he thinks to himself, if you'll call on your God, Jonah, perhaps maybe he'll listen and perhaps maybe he'll save our life. And that's exactly what God does. You know what it teaches us about this God who wants to save the people of Nineveh, who's going to the ends of the earth to chase down Jonah and save Jonah from his own self? And who saves these sailors? It teaches us about God. You don't have to know everything, you don't have to get it perfectly right. You don't have to say the exact right words and pray the exact right prayer and go through the exact right motions and Do it this way and do it that way in order for God to say, oh, you finally got all the pieces together. I shall now move on your behalf. No, God just saw the heart. God said, you're right about me. I will intervene. Jonah lies. He says, all right, I'll I'll, uh, I'll talk to God. But he doesn't. He doesn't actually pray. He doesn't want to face God at all. And so instead, what does Jonah end up doing? He says, just throw me overboard. What a a stubborn mule this guy is. Just throw me overboard. He knows that'll be a solution. He knows he's the problem. He knows what's going on is because of him and the Lord and what he's done. He knows, but he's not actually going to pray about it and repent of it and ask God to just put a cease to the storm and turn around. Jonah's solution is throw me into the ocean more selfishness we see the grace of god in his continued pursuit of jonah we see the grace of god and his love for the people of nineveh we see the grace of god he revealed himself to these sailors the story with the sailors which we're not actually through but it stops when their story's over. Like, we don't know what became of them, but I can't help but believe that these sailors who heard of the God of the Hebrews who created the heavens and the earth, who brought this violent storm they'd never seen and then caused it to cease like that, who watched this supernatural. I can't help but believe the life of these sailors was different forever after. The story of the book of Jonah is this incredible story of the rebellion of mankind and a God that is so gracious, he just keeps pursuing us.